Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health, and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. Another podcast, another great guest, guys. In my opinion, this topic relates to everyone. So really excited to have it today. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Stephen Hussey. Now, who is Stephen? Stephen is a chiropractor based in the US, specifically in Virginia, and he's a functional medicine practitioner. He's a health coach on both the, the topic of heart health and type 1 diabetes. He's an author of a great book called The Health Evolution, and he's got an interesting story, one where he's grappled with autoimmune issues and type 1 diabetes for most of his life. And what I love about Stephen's work is his appreciation for evolution and how he thinks and describes this evolutionary mismatch between our bodies and our modern lifestyle and how this mismatch is catching up with us in significant ways. See, I too had a number of penny dropping moments about evolution recently, whether it be nature, evolution itself, or our need to work with it as opposed to assuming a godlike role and engineering ourselves out of this fundamental law of life. So without further ado, I welcome Dr. Stephen Hussey. Welcome, man. Hey, hey, thanks for being here. I'm excited to get this started. Ah, oh, same here, man. Same here too. Really, really psyched. And look, if it's okay with you, I'm I'm really intrigued about a couple of things in particular, and I hope we can explore them today. This concept you've got about evolutionary mismatch, especially as it relates to movement, because uh, I'm fascinated about you know the nutritional side, the lifestyle side, sleep. I think there's a big mismatch there as well as lighting. So maybe if we have time, we can explore those, Stephen. But for me, you as a chiropractor and me being a layman, assuming what a chiropractor is or isn't, I think it'd be great for us to get into this idea of movement, posture, and joint issues as it relates to our typical modern day life. And maybe perhaps you can level set us on this evolutionary mismatch hypotheses. And then maybe if it works for you, we can explore the the chiropractic service as a whole, because I, I believe there's still some tarnished reputation in that industry. Albeit, I personally love going to my Cairo. I think they're worth their <laughs> weight in gold. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I'm I'm a massive proponent of chiropractic services, but there are many people that would suggest they're they're quacks and uh, charlatans. So I'd love for us to kind of dispel some of those myths. So how does yeah. that sound for you, Stephen? Sounds perfect. Cool, man. I know you're the man for the job, and you're going to be able to handle this <laughs> in your for sleep. Sure. So why don't we get us get us started? Let the listeners know who you are. And maybe kind of how you arrived at your place of current enlightenment and what then led to writing the book that you have recently published. So start wherever you want. Uh, yeah. I'll take take as long as you need for us to understand a little bit more about you. Okay. Yeah. So um, from a very young age, uh, I think around two, my parents tell me, uh, they started noticing signs of, of me having like trouble um, breathing, coughing and wheezing, that kind of stuff. And 
Uh, I went to the doctor and they diagnosed me with asthma. And so that was kind of the first thing uh, that got us thrown into, you know, health issues. And throughout my childhood, um, I had lots of other inflammatory uh, conditions. So asthma would be one of the inflammatory conditions, but I also had uh, chronic hives. I would just break out in chronic hives and uh, nobody could tell me why. Uh, I had irritable bowel syndrome, uh, terrible allergies, and then ultimately ended up with uh, this autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes, where my body attacked the cells that make insulin. Uh, and so now they don't work anymore. So that sounds uh, horrendous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, attack on yourself, a little friendly fire there. Uh, and so I think that if I had known what I know now about uh, health and just how the body works and evolution and our environments, I could have changed my environment to reverse that process from happening. But now that the collateral damage is done, uh, those cells are quote unquote uh, dead or don't produce insulin anymore. So um, I have type 1 diabetes until uh, I find a way to get rid of it. So, um, yeah, so we were kind of, my parents and I, thrown into the Western medical model. And it was, it was effective at, I guess, keeping me alive, so to speak, uh, because, you know, without synthetic insulin, uh, I wouldn't be here uh, because my body doesn't make its own insulin. Uh, but they were never really telling me why these things happen. They were just saying, oh, you know, it's genetic. It runs in your family and, and uh, those things just happen. And so we have to treat them. And, they, you know, they were the saviors. They, they pictured themselves as the saviors coming to save me and, and keep me alive, which is great. They did. But I guess uh, as I grew up, uh, especially when I got to college, uh, I started to realize that I could make changes in my lifestyle uh, and like what I ate and, and how I lived. Uh, and these were things I had no idea what I was doing at this point. It was just kind of trial and error. But I could make these changes and they affected my blood sugars. And I just found that interesting that, that no doctor had ever told me that. They were always focused on um, how much insulin I was taking and the right uh, doses and times of days and things like that. They never told me uh, to change what I ate, never told me to um, how or when to exercise or things like that, uh, to avoid toxins or anything, uh, reduce stress. They just you know, were con uh, concerned with the insulin levels I was having or getting. And so I found that interesting. And that's, I think, when I first started to explore the idea that there's something more to this. Uh, and so uh, as I uh, went through college, I learned more and more about health. And then as I went to chiropractic school, uh, my medical education, uh, I learned a lot more about health and physiology and how the body works. But I found it interesting that even in my medical education, they weren't really focused on the why of, of what was happening to people, no matter what disease we were studying. It was about the what. It was how do we diagnose what they have so we know what to do with them. Mm. Uh, so my chiropractic school uh, was uh, very adamant about training us to be primary care physicians so we could recognize anything that someone had, um, you know, disease that they had, and we could send them to the appropriate person. Um, or if it was musculoskeletal in nature, that we could take care of it. Um, we're kind of conservative orthopedists as chiropractors. But it was still very focused on the what, the diagnosis. Uh, and that's just kind of how, you know, our medical system is set up. If you don't have a diagnosis, you don't know how to treat, you don't know how to get paid, that kind of stuff. So um, I started looking further and further, and I got my master's in functional medicine, which was a little more about the why um, and figuring out the imbalances in the body that cause all sorts of chronic illnesses. But even there, like I was still curious, that I, I was understanding why these diseases were happening as, and what in the environment was, in someone's environment was triggering these diseases to happen. Uh, but I was still, you know, I'm, I'm very curious. I still wanted to know why those imbalances were happening. And so eventually, um, I mean, I just kind of started reading anything I could that concerned health. And I eventually got, found my way to 
to Darwin and um, and Richard Dawkins and Jared Diamond. And when I started reading uh, those guys, I really put two and two together, and I realized that there was this huge mismatch um, between our environments and our current way of life. And so when I was a kid, having these um, poor reactions to the environment that I was in uh, and the things that had happened to me in my life from from day one, um, I, I realized that if we had changed the environment, if I had a different environment when I was a child, none of these things probably would have happened. And so now it's it's uh, I'm proud to say that most of those things, aside from that collateral damage that is type 1 diabetes, are gone. I don't have them at all. I mean, I'm not allergic to cats anymore. We have three cats. Hmm. Uh, I don't have any hives, no IBS, nothing like that, uh, because I changed the environment my body was in. So that's just, how I got into all this kind of stuff. Quick question on, on that, actually, Stephen. Yeah. Um, if you were to play devil's advocate, someone would hear your story and say, you just got unlucky. You know, it's genetics. Um, there's there's maybe something going on that you just had a weakened immune system. So it, it's luck of the draw. Mm. And you're talking about lifestyle. And I think that's holistic, right? I guess you're talking about, mm. you know, sleep. You're talking about nutrition. You're talking about probably mindset as well as exercise, movement, the whole piece. But mm -hmm. someone who would want to be antagonistic or somewhat skeptical about that story would say, you were just unlucky because I probably had a similar lifestyle to you and I didn't suffer any of those consequences. What do you say to that? Well, I guess the first thing I say is that we now know through the study and discovery of what's called epigenetics that we can influence the way our genes express themselves. So, you know, we all have this set of genes and I, I kind of liken it to a game of poker. You know, we're all dealt a certain uh, set of cards, uh, but just because we have a very poor set of cards doesn't mean we'll lose the hand, the hand that is life, you know, uh, or we'll get disease. It depends on how we play that hand. Uh, and so that's the, the kind of the, the essence of epigenetics. So Dr. Uh, Bruce Lipton originally kind of figured this out uh, where he was getting, um, I forget which type of cells he put into a Petri dish, but he was he's surrounding them with chemicals, uh, neurochemicals that are secreted during different emotions. And he, could, he showed that he could change the expression of the genes based on the chemicals that um, he was putting in there. So based on which emotions we're expressing, he was changing genes and how they express themselves. So you could have a, you know, a terrible set of genes like I did, uh, but it's, they're only terrible if you put them in the wrong environment. If, the envir if it's an environment that tells them to express themselves as disease or as problems, uh, whereas if you put them in a, an environment that's more in line with what humans evolved in, uh, they know how to express themselves better and we don't get expression of those um, those poor quality genes. And I think that people kind of get stuck on, you know, there's there's these diseases and these diseases must have a gene for them. Like you have a gene for heart disease or a gene for a certain cancer, but that's not how it, how it works. I mean, they can keep looking. I don't think they're ever going to find a gene for heart disease. Uh, they can find little variations, like the most famous one is the BRCA gene for breast cancer. Uh, but whether or not someone has that gene or not doesn't matter. What really matters is uh, the environment they put that gene in. If they put it in the right environment, it will never express itself as cancer. Uh, they may have a genetic tendency toward it, uh, but uh, again, the environment will trigger it. So the famous thing in, in functional medicine is um, your genes load the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. So, yeah. I'm, and I'm, I think that I completely agree with you, by the way, Stephen. I and I wasn't being antagonistic because I'm no, uh, naive or skeptical personally. I, I completely buy into epigenetics. I think we are 
fundamentally so in control of the potential outcome of our health and well-being albeit some people uh need to change their environment drastically because of their socioeconomic background or how they were raised or just generally the kind of lifestyle choices of their family put them in a mm -hmm. maybe a vulnerable position to get out of the get-go when they were born um through to hey sometimes we've we've not got a perfect set uh, um, perfect set whether it be about muscle building or foods you can tolerate or not but you can work through that and you can thrive you just need to know how to work with what you've got um and i've, I've seen it myself i've seen long periods of my life where i really abused my body because i didn't know any better and i'm paying the consequence of some of those that collateral damage now mm -hmm. but it's only starting to make sense at 37. it's yeah. fascinating yeah yeah and and i think that many of the changes that we see as far as our environment go happen within the first few years of life and so we're setting our kids up for having a poor reaction to their environment just by how they're being brought into the world which is very concerning uh, so it's it's a it's a it's a problematic thing I, I think that i mean as an example i mean the average baby today is born with 180 toxic chemicals in their bloodstream the day they're born from mom that they got from their mother mm. um and you know, kids who aren't born naturally, they're born versus cesarean section, which is sometimes necessary, uh, but it happens way too often. Uh, they're missing out on the bacteria from the birth canal, uh, and lots of times babies aren't breastfed. Um, and so you know, that bacteria from the birth canal and being breastfed is what creates the baby's immune system. And then we expect it to have a normal reaction to vaccines which rely on a functioning immune system. And so I think we're seeing a huge mismatch in how um, you know, within the first six months of life, how, how kids are, are really brought into this world and we're setting them up for failure. So, yeah, yeah, I hear you. And I don't think it's, it's definitely not blissful ignorance, uh, mm -hmm. nor is it, uh, you know, purposeful negligence. I think it's just a naivety, right? We have moved so quickly and I'm sure this is now going to dovetail perfectly into this kind of evolutionary mismatch but we have moved so quickly as a species in the last say couple of hundred years especially in the last 50 to 70 mm -hmm. and this inability to catch up or this naivety that some of the things that we're doing are probably going to be bad for us such as not having any bacteria in the food that our kids kids eat when they're first born, over sterilizing mm -hmm. things, not letting them get dirty, you know, that those things that we've assumed are bad. I mean, God, just through my lifetime alone, the amount of things I've been told I shouldn't do, whether it be don't eat any fat, whether it be, you know, sterilize everything, don't get dirty, whether mm -hmm. it be, you know, stay away from carbs. I mean, there's just so many things, or don't eat cholesterol, that kind of stuff. And we're right. now starting to realize that we were misguided not intentionally or maliciously but we were misguided and if you're naive to the truth um you could do some damage to your kids without realizing and i i think that's a startling startling reality but it's people like you and others who are spreading a message which fundamentally is kind of do what we always were supposed to do and stop fucking with the system right mm -hmm. yeah exactly so let's talk about that let's talk about this evolutionary mismatch like how do you see it how, what are the kind of building blocks that helped you see this the way you do today in terms of what our bodies are capable of and the environment in which we're putting them in today yeah so to me what i, what I really what i outline in the book and and um what i think 
really there's four things that really sunk in for me uh, that made me make this connection. And so I'll kind of go through those. The first one is that um, is natural selection, like Darwin's term, natural selection, which basically means that you know, given certain environmental pressures, uh, those environmental pressures will select for certain traits in an individual. And so the ones that aren't selected, um, those individuals will not get the opportunity to um, to mate and to have offspring. So their genes will not be passed on. And so those are not selected for and those genes die off and the ones that were selected for get passed on. So uh, a an example of that is um, peacocks. Uh, so the, the tail feathers of a peacock have evolved to get very big because the females go around and look at the male's tail feathers and see what an impressive display it is. Oh, this, this must be a very healthy individual. Um, also, it must be able to get away from predators pretty effectively uh, because of that big tail that's weighing it down. It's still alive. And so they select those males because they want their children to have those good genes. And so that sexual selection uh, has selected for these peacocks to have these bigger feathers, and they'll probably continue to get bigger as the females keep selecting for the, the males with the bigger tail feathers. And so the ones with the smaller tail feathers all the way, always get, um, they don't get a chance to reproduce, so those genes die off with them. So that's kind of how natural selection works. But I used to think that, uh, I used to think in my head, like how could it be possible that an individual um, would could change its characteristics to better suit its environments? Well, it turns out an individual can't. We're kind of we are the way we are, but through generations, it can. So that's natural selection. Once I figured that kind of stuff out, I was like, oh, that's how evolution works. So that's kind of a baseline. Um, the second one is that many times people think that humans in, uh, evolved from apes, like there's just straight lineage from you know what we know as apes today uh, that eventually became a modern human, but that's not really how it worked. Um, humans and apes came from a, a modern ancestor, a common ancestor. So uh, at some point, there was this, uh, this creature that we don't really know what it looked like exactly uh, that uh, was living, you know, millions of years ago. And there was a split that happened. So let's say that population of that creature um, got divided. And now we have two different environments where these, these um, creatures are living. And so one environment selected it differently and be they became what we know as modern apes, you know, the bonobos and chimpanzees and gorillas. And then over time, that other group, um, had many other species that developed and died off uh, as they went through, um, but eventually gave rise to modern humans. So uh, it wasn't that we directly came from apes, but that we came from a common ancestor with apes, which is why we're so closely related to them. But the second part of that is that it just goes to show that we humans are still susceptible to evolution. And I think the most uh, modern example of this, my, the one I like to, to point out is, is diabetes and metabolic syndrome. And, and so we're taught in, in medical school that people of minority descent, uh, whether it's Pacific Islander or Native American or African American um, descent, uh, have these diseases uh, more severely and more often than the people of European descent. And the reason that is, is because people in Europe were eating these foods that tended to cause these metabolic syndromes and diabetes and heart disease um, before people of uh, minority descent. And so we're speaking here in the, in the U.S., obviously. And so what we see happen is that those people in that um, their ancestors came from like Western and Northern Europe were eating these foods for hundreds of years longer and didn't have modern medicine to keep them alive. So they less of them got to pass on their genes, the ones who got these diseases. So those genes tended to die off a little bit more in people of European descent. 
Whereas you take people in minority descent and you throw them into um, this modern diet, uh, this you know standard American diet that is um, so unhealthy for us, and they have a more negative response because their ancestors have not been exposed to that and had no time to um, evolve or adapt to that diet at all. Now, people of European descent can still get those diseases, but it's just seen, you know, when they when you study them, that people of minority descent get them more often and more severely than people of European descent. So we're still susceptible to evolution. That's a little example there. Now, taking those two principles and um, thinking about them as we apply the third one. The third one is that evolution takes a very, very long time, which is why it's hard for some people to grasp, like so long that um, it, it is really hard for people to grasp because, you know, we have this lifespan of 80 to 100 years and evolution takes way longer than that. So um, there was a Russian scientist named Dmitry Belyev uh, and he was up in Siberia and he was selectively breeding uh, this wild fox for docile and domesticated traits, the ones that were more likely to come up to him and, you know, eat out of his hand or things like that. He took those foxes and um, allowed them to breed only. So he was doing very selective breeding with them. And it took about 30 generations of doing this. Uh, and he could do this because uh, foxes have a reproductive cycle that's only about three months, I think. Um, so they were much um, quicker at adapting. But uh, it took about 30 generations until he, he saw changes um, like physical and behavioral characteristic changes. And I think people have continued his work because he's since passed away and they're on like the 50th generation now and they pretty much have these foxes that act and behave like dogs. Uh, they're like pets. And so um, that's a lot of generations and that's with very select breeding with a species that breeds pretty quickly, much quicker than humans. So to, um, to get any type of um, change at a genetic level, evolutionary change, it would take at least 30 generations uh, so that's quite a long time. I mean, I don't even know what my ancestors looked four generations ago. Mm. So, yeah, it takes a really, really long time. And so that leads us right into the fourth principle that, that I, when I put together led me to these conclusions was that when, because of this process that takes a long time, when the environment of any individual species changes too quickly, there's no way that that species could have the necessary generations it needed to adapt to that environment. So as an example, I mean, an extreme example is um, like the dinosaurs, you know, some catastrophic event happened, whether it was a meteor that struck the earth and changed the whole environment or volcanoes on the earth all erupting at the same time, like something happened that changed the environment so drastically that it wiped them out. And they had no, there's no way they could have had the necessary generations to survive. Um, and then another example is that, you know, bacteria and viruses are some of the most resilient species we know of. But that's because they can reproduce every 30 minutes if they need to. Uh, they, they're always proliferating, you know, so they have a very quick um, um, reproductive cycle, which means they can adapt more quickly. Whereas what we're seeing today with humans is that, you know, we lived a certain way for millions of years, kind of like, you know, people say hunter-gatherers or out in nature, that kind of thing, in very different environments than we have today. So our environment today is not changing so fast that it's killing us off like it did the dinosaurs. Um, but it's, all, it's obviously having an effect as we see this rise in chronic disease. So this, this chronic disease epidemic is a result of our environment changing too quickly. It's the symptom of us being removed from what, the environment we evolved in for, for millions of years. So that's this whole evolutionary mismatch um, uh, idea. So. Fascinating, Stephen. And I, I concur. Have you read a book called Sapiens by any chance? I have. It's been a while, but yeah, I did read it. Yeah, he's got another two books. I'm on to his second, which is called Homo Deus. 
yeah. uh, which I think he's talking about where where he thinks the homo species is going to go. It's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got a couple of questions off of this, and these are kind of yeah. they're, they're slightly um, eth- ethically charged, uh, maybe mm-hmm. even inappropriate. But I'd love to get your thoughts on them. Okay. So um, I don't know. Let's take another example. So let's take like a, a giraffe, right? And giraffes mm-hmm. have exceedingly long uh, necks. And uh, the hypothesis goes from an evolutionary perspective that given their environment, the trees that were available, that through time, as you say, through selective, sele- uh, through selection of the people that can sustain within that environment, um, the giraffes may be looking slightly horse-like that were able to reach the higher up leaves were able to you know, reproduce and through time mm-hmm. their necks got longer to uh, adapt to the environment. But it was it was mm-hmm. through selection. It wasn't they didn't just adapt on the fly within the one generation as you've just described. Mm-hmm. So it is deliberate. It's very environmental led. Um, but we as a species seem to be uh, have a obsession with controlling life, or more importantly, controlling death, not wanting mm-hmm. it to occur. For us to all be treated as equal all to have equal opportunities and be able, capable, mentally, physically, socially, psychologically, as anyone else. We should all be given the same right and opportunity. Mm-hmm. However, if we play that through with giraffes or the peacocks or any other species that we can talk about objectively without any emotion, we can say evolution self-selects the superior genes the superior animals that can sustain the environmental impact or the environment that they're in. Would it not be right to say that as as humans, we, we're, we're unwilling to accept that, that some some of the seven to eight billion humans on, on this planet perhaps just don't have good enough genes to proliferate because we are proliferating as a species to the point that we're taking over the planet and causing lots of harm to the planet because of our need to you know, sustained life and, you know, our overeating indulgences and all that kind of stuff, our materialistic world, our need for fuel. But if we were not messing with evolution the way we are now, across those areas I've just described, we, we there wouldn't be seven or eight billion of us. There'd be much, much fewer. Right. Epidemics would have struck us down. We would have been sell, we would have been selected out for whatever reason. And the question is, long-winded as it is, is is this idea that are we assuming that all of us have equal opportunity when in actual fact, genetically, physically, in response to our environment, some of us aren't destined to thrive? Right. So I I think the short answer is, is, is yes. I think that, I mean, this is a Kind of a sticky subject. It's horrible, it's, right? It's, it's a horrible it's topic. Fun, it's fun to talk about, to, in my opinion. I, I think these are things we need to talk about um, as far as, you know, salvation of our species. So I think that I was just having this uh, thought today, actually, that we, I think that there's this, there's this obsession with finding what it is. What's the one thing that's good for humans to eat? What, what should we all be eating? What should... Um, you know, which toxins are bad for you, which ones aren't all, um, is, is stress going to affect me or is it not? And there's all these different nuances and people want to find, they want it to be black and white. They want to, they want to know what to do. They want to get the instruction on what to do so they can do it. Um, but I think that what we've done with our modern society is we've created this 
um, vast array of diversity among our genes because, like you were saying, if we had let, you know, quote unquote, nature take its course, it would have been selecting for the best genes for the environment that we're in. And so since we've kind of, you know, gotten smart enough to bypass that, uh, we, we have allowed people like myself uh, to live longer than they should have in this new environment that we're in, right? So that means that we've got people like me running around whose genes had a very poor reaction to this modern environment who could still reproduce and pass on those genes that are, you know, poorly suited for this environment. And just in, instead of um, not passing on my genes and allowing, you know, um, the human species, uh, the people that do have like, you know, those people that smoke and drink and are exposed to all the toxins and have all kinds of stress and still live to their 100. Those are the people that um, that nature would have selected for if we had let it take its course. Maybe. And then if we have done that and those people had been the ones passing on all the genes, then eventually the whole population would be full of those people that are very resistant to disease in this modern environment that we created. But since, you know, um, Western medicine has, has kept many of us alive, I mean, and I'm thankful that it has. I mean, I'm here because of that. But I just recognize the fact that we're kind of, we're almost devolving. You know, we're, we've, we've bypassed evolution to an extent. Uh, we've, we've created a life to where the natural world doesn't have those, that relentlessness toward us. And yeah. so I think that's, I think there's a, there's a quote by Rene Dubot um, and I'm going to butcher it. I don't have it here in front of me, but it, it's something along the lines of, um, we have thought of, you know, many different ways to mitigate the, the relentlessness of evolution and, um, and, you know, allowing our species to survive at the, the highest level that it can. But that has not given us the answers to what to, what we should do with the, you know, the problems that all those people create, you know, having all those people in the world is creating. Um, and so, we just really need to step back and think about this stuff. And I don't know the answer. And I'm perfectly comfortably, you know, comfortable saying, I don't know the answer. I don't know how we would ever get, um, A, how we would ever identify the people who shouldn't be passing on their genes and Hey, how, how we would ever prevent them from doing so, uh, ethically. Oh, no, you know? no, no. E ethically we're way beyond that. You know, our, yeah. we, we are obsessed with two things in my mind, power, and the need for more of it, you know, to assert mm. power on our environment, to assert power on health, on evolution. Uh, mm -hmm. But we don't know what to do with this power. Some people have got so much power, they, they, they still don't have life purpose because it's just this kind of conscious need within humans who are very conscious, you know, the most conscious animal on the planet to just drive for more, more is better. And we then have the second kind of uh, obsession, which is life preservation life preservation right. at all costs you know we've got people that quite frankly um you know we're, we're spending an inordinate amount of money in their later years in, in life keeping them alive because we don't want to admit that maybe it's time and you know i've actually i've got um very close to home experiences of exactly that we've got mm -hmm. we've got someone in our family who has been struck down with with dementia and Alzheimer's in a significant way. They're, they're like 85, 90. So like they're, they're not young. They've had a mm -hmm. fantastic life. But over the last 15 years, it's, uh, it's just unraveled um, to the point that this individual doesn't know what day of the week it is. It has right. no life uh, 
to look forward to. Doesn't know who anyone is. Is just mm -hmm. cantankerous for for the, the moments he is aware of what's going on. But I look mm -hmm. at that and go, we we we're keeping him alive because we're too scared of death. And I I think that in part, you know, without this being overly ethically um, uh, driven. That in part is, I think, the challenge we've got. Western medicine, some of the miraculous inventions that we've uncovered to just keep to work through problems, uh, whether it be severed limbs through to uh, diseases, infections, and we're trying to solve for everything. Uh, mm -hmm. But the consequence of that is we've got more mouths to feed, more complexity, and then we've got these age-related diseases that we're now saying are epidemics. Are they epidemics or are they just a consequence of age? That we're now just starting to see because we're getting older Anything yeah or, or are they you know i think that we would see much less of these age-related diseases if humans were in their natural environment i mean the work of weston price is showing people you know he was studying those uh, people who are living uh, more like our our ancient ancestors were or at least closer to it and there were people 60 70 years old who were still participating in, in the hunts you know going on the hunts with the with the young guys so i think that we would see much less of these age-related diseases, but also, um, if we were living in the correct environment, I think that um, we would, I mean, if we were living in the correct environment, I don't think evolution would be too concerned with with a human or any species after its reproductive years. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be really concerned with what happened because they can't pass on genes anymore. I and so, that's what- I so, so agree. So agree. Yeah, like, so, once so you've I don't had your kids, once you've had your yeah. kids, evolutionary, from a nature perspective, like your job is done. And I, I often look at my life and go, my job's done. I, I mean, I could have more kids. You know, I, I've got the capability to, but I've got no desire. So, you yeah. know, for, for all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm a consumer. I'm not a producer at this stage of my exactly. life. And for the rest exactly. of my life, I will be a consumer, not a producer. And that, you know, again, is it an ethical discussion. It's a horrible discussion because I'm not talking about annihilating a human species. Far right. from it. I, you know, I, I love the time that we live in. I, I love... Uh, the opportunity individuals have but it's this this idea that we we have this divine right to live for a, you know 100 years when really our job's done by 30 mm -hmm. 35 and yeah. we're just trying to keep things going for another 70 years yeah i mean and there is the case that you know i mean as far as like elders go like they were they were still helping the younger people in a tribe survive because of their knowledge and wisdom true and uh, that they were passing on but at a certain point, you're right. It it does it does get to the point where evolution is not concerned with this person anymore. They may be weighing the tribe down, and I think that um, there's evidence of that archaeologically that the people were just left, you know, uh, and and that could have been because they were really sick or they were too elderly or whatever it was. Um, but that, yeah, it, it's an interesting discussion, and I think that the answer is that we just need to be more conscious about how we approach. Uh, the coming years, uh, as far as a life and death perspective. I mean, we're really messing with the way children are brought into the world and affecting their health there. And then we're, and I think we're, um, I mean, for sake of sounding not too, not too terrible, it's like, I think we're, we're creating more life for people who are, who are done, you know, and I think that's, um, you said, you know, we're obsessed or we're, we're very uncomfortable with death, but I think it's almost like, it's kind of a selfish reason because we don't want to lose that person. Um, yeah, you know, and it's 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 our nature. Maybe that person's ready to go, but oh, maybe they're just so out of so, it that they so that they people. can't even tell us that. I mean, um, I, I saw a documentary about euthanasia in 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 United States and how uh, it's a hotly 
discussed topic and it's in most case in most states illegal but in some states you can assist with youth euthanasia and i don't want to go down a, a rabbit hole but just yeah. that discussion alone of like an individual doesn't have the right to go <laughs> right. in today's yeah. day and age it is it is crazy so listen i'm not going to yeah. go down that rabbit hole because <laughs> it will it will definitely take us down into dark places so let's yeah. get back on topic uh, and it was completely my fault for getting off topic but let's get back <laughs> so how do we kind of bring this back to movement then so i, I know mm. we could speak at length about the nutritional mismatch and the lifestyle mismatch but specifically when it comes to movement where do you think there is that disconnect? Yeah, so I spend a lot of time thinking about joints as a chiropractor. I mean, that's kind of what I'm uh, having the most effect on the body is those joints and then the nervous system um, is secondary to that. So, but if, as far as joints go, if we look at joints, I mean, I thought it was interesting to learn in school that, you know, joints don't have a direct blood supply, like the cartilage and the joints, uh, whereas most other tissues in the body have this direct blood supply. Even the the nucleus of your um, disc and your spinal cord don't have a direct blood supply. The outer edge of it does, but um, they don't have a way to get um, nutrition directly from the blood. So they rely on motion uh, to do that. So if you picture, you know, two uh, bones coming together to make a joint and they're both lined with cartilage, and every time you move that joint, the cartilage gets squished kind of like a sponge, mm -hmm. and all the fluid and, and nutrition in it, old nutrition, gets pushed out. And then when you move the joint back, uh, it takes the pressure off of it. It's not squeezing anymore. And then new nutrition and fluid is soaked in. And that's how our joints get nutrition. So basically, for our joints to get nutrition and, um, and stay healthy, to repair themselves uh, and things like that, we need motion. So mm -hmm. we evolved to move. You know, if we weren't moving, this never would have evolved. You know, if we were just sitting there, those joints would have had to have a direct blood supply to get nutrition then to keep them alive. But since we had this motion, they were like, oh, well, we don't need that. Um, Never heard that before, move, Stephen. That, that's, yeah, move, that's fascinating. Yeah, so move through um, diffusion, basically. And so to me, that tells me that we are designed to move. But not only are we designed to move, um, I mean, there's other things that tell us we're designed to move too, like that we're mostly skeletal muscle, which are big movers, um, but also protectors of joints. Um, but not only we're we designed to move is that we're designed to move through full range of motion Because if you don't get full range of motion, then all that old fluid is not getting squished out and uh, Then some aspects of that cartilage and that joint are not getting replenished And so if they're not getting replenished, we see degeneration over time And so to me that just tells us tells me that we're designed to move and we're designed to move through full range of motion that would make sense. And if you think about how we sustained life, um, it was foraging, it was hunting. Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously a, a, a life preservation need to move as well. And our lifestyles many thousands of years ago would have been very different to what we see today. Mm -hmm. What? So would I be right in saying that you believe that we move less now than perhaps we were designed to move definitely i mean if you look at i mean I, I think of the average person and how they you know they uh get out of bed in the morning uh and their bed is high off the ground so they're just kind of basically sh um, swiveling off the bed and they're and they're up uh walking now and they go throughout the day they're walking they may sit on the toilet uh they may sit in their car to go to work they go to work they sit uh, in a chair mm -hmm. uh, for most of the day and then they're up walking again uh and then 
But the point of that, all that is, is that throughout the entire day, never does that hip or very rarely does that hip go um, beyond 90 degrees, like mm -hmm. a full squat all the way down. So I think this, you know, all the hip um, issues that we see are not only due to, I think, improper movements, you know, too impactful movements, but also just not getting enough range of motion in that hip. Uh, and I'm one of them. I mean, I never like stretched or did anything. And I, I played soccer for, for years, uh, still do. Uh, and my hips are where I, I, I really had to battle back to get that range of motion again, because I was never squatting, you know, I was always sitting in things and then going out and running around and sitting again. And I never retained that, that range of motion. So I think that our, our modern lifestyles of sitting behind a desk and not getting uh, down to the ground, everything's built up to us. All our desks are built up to where it's convenient for us. We never have really have to go down to the ground. Even when we do, we don't bend from the knees and the hips. We kind of bend over from the back. And now we see that 80% of the population has uh, back problems in their life, uh, which is why I have a job. But it's, it's because we're not using our joints the way we should be. And do you think that there's, do you think that movement or the lack thereof is the cause behind much of people's discomfort, whether it be back pain, whether it be very, you know, people think they need their knees replaced or their hips replaced. Is that too much movement, too much exercise, the wrong movement? Or do you think more likely a lack of proper range of motion throughout their life? I think it's a combination of all the things you just mentioned. So it's, if we looked at well, I mean, one thing is that we're, we're forcing our bodies to do things they're not meant to do. I mean, the perfect example is, is the feet. Uh, when a baby is born, its, its foot looks like a wedge. You know, it's got the, the calcaneus there at the back and then uh, all the, you know, tarsal bones in there. And then all the phalanges kind of splay out and they make like a wedge-like shape of the foot. Um, but, you know, from the time babies are two years old, we put we're foot into a shoe. Uh, and I, I remember seeing, uh, some documentary somewhere and they're, they're kind of famous. Those, I think it was Chinese women who, you know, would bind their feet and so they could fit their feet into these shoes. Cause it was like aesthetically pleasing or something like that. But their, their feet looked very, uh, misshapen and deformed and from them doing this. And so that just goes to show that we can, uh, affect the way our bones form. And so from the time we're two, we put them into these shoes and that does four things. Um, it, incorrectly supports the arch of our foot. Um, it raises the toes up, which is the main support for one end of the arches. It squeezes the toes together to where they're kind of pointing toward the midline. And it raises the heel. Uh, it raises the heel um, because there's always a little heel on a shoe, you know, and that tightens the calf. And so that, you know, from a very early age, totally messes up the way our feet are supposed to interact with the earth. Uh, and so, um, that's just you know one example uh, of all the one of the different ways or all the different ways that um, we mess with uh, the formation of our joints. You know, from the time we're you know five years old, um, we're told to sit in a desk uh, where we're not getting that hip motion, uh, where you know gravity's uh, kind of pulling down our back. We start to get this arch in our upper back, uh, which is jamming the joints together there and not allowing them to move properly. And so, you know, then we see all these adults with back pain issues with um, hip, knee, and, and foot issues, uh, and it's no, no surprise, really. Now, the other aspect, I think, is that, so, one, we're not getting enough range of motion. Two, we're, you know, changing the environment that their joints are um, developing in. And three is, is food. 
uh, we're not getting the nutrition we need to develop proper joints. And lots of times we're eating things that are actually um, either inflammatory or toxic uh, or causing your body to attack tissue in your joints. I mean, the most famous is, is lectins, uh, which are found in you know um, grains and legumes, but also nightshade vegetables like potatoes and eggplants and tomatoes and things like that and peppers. Um, and so those things have been associated with you know arthritis and, and joint issues. And so there's, I think there's a, there's a lot of different factors and, you know, which one it is for you or anybody, um, could be different. Uh, there could be one affecting you more than the other, but they're all a mismatch in this environment that we've had, because those are not things that we would have been doing living in a natural environment that we evolved in for millions of years. So I've, I train a lot. I train, I get into the gym probably five days a week. Now it's not, it's not natural movement per se, right? You know, I'm not climbing trees and, you know, scouring mm -hmm. mountains and, you know, doing the things that perhaps my body had evolved to do. But I am moving. I'm moving under load. Um, I'm focusing on balance. I'm focusing on strength. Um, I'm focusing on preventing atrophy, if anything, uh, and hopefully developing a little size. But I've come up against a number of you know, aches and pains. But through my time of training and my relationship with my chiropractor, I've become very finely tuned to when my body needs attention. I wouldn't say yeah. I'm like an expert or I'm some guru, but I kind of know what I need to do. Uh, um, and I, I listen to the early signs that things are going a bit off. And in my experience and with, uh, with my co-host, Bryn Jenkins, who's a rehab guy, uh, mm -hmm. a very good one at that, it seems that a lot of our kind of like body discomfort issues uh, come down to pressure on the joints caused typically by uh, imbalances in intentional strength between various muscles and, uh, you know, attachments. Is, is that fair? Because I think in my, in my experience, that has almost always been the case. It's like it's rotator cuff instability or it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, QL firing, therefore I've got a twinge in my back, or I had a horrible moviegoer's knee for a couple of years, couldn't squat, just mm -hmm. realized I wasn't moving right and I hadn't strengthened, you know, all the muscles around my knee and they were they were imbalanced, causing pressure in the wrong areas. Mm -hmm. Is that an, an appropriate assumption behind much of our discomfort when it comes to body and joints? Um, excluding the nutrition box. So I'll get back to that in a second. Yeah, uh, there's definitely a case there. So I think uh, the most common reason that someone's shoulder starts to degenerate um, is, again, not full range of motion in the shoulder, but also, as you mentioned in here, I think imbalances in muscles. So our muscles are movers. They're also protectors of our joints, but they cross joints. And that's something that, you know, me having studied anatomy, like it's a given for me, but people don't realize it sometimes. Like, in order for a muscle to act on a joint, it has to attach from one bone of the joint and cross to the other bone that makes up that joint so that when it um, contracts or gets shorter, it has an effect on that joint. It moves it the way it needs to go. Now, you can imagine that, like, just say, like, a rope going from one bone to the next, and these bones are not connected. But if that rope got tighter um, or got shorter and we still had to connect those bones, that would just drive the bones together more. So that's going to reduce the amount of motion we have, or if we still have motion in it, uh, it's also going to grind that cartilage a little bit. Uh, so um, it'll, it'll wear it away over time. 
uh, and especially if we don't have the proper nutrition or we're not um, giving the body nutrition through proper motion because now we don't have it because the muscles are restricting it. And so I think uh, one of the most common things that our modern day lifestyle is creating is imbalances in muscles. You know, we get tight hip flexors from sitting too long. Uh, we get um, tight, uh, we get things like upper cross syndrome where our traps are really tight, pecs are really tight, and our shoulders are rolled forward, which causes rotator cuff issues. Um, all these these repetitive motions or these repetitive lack of motions, these sustained postures that we're doing are creating these muscle imbalances in our joints that are kind of grinding them down, uh, especially if we're not doing other things to, to keep the joints healthy. So it sounds like uh, the prescription is really, we need to move more. We, we, yeah. need, we, we, I think the prescription for anything, that are, you know, there's so much science, there's so much research and money being spent to arrive at what seem to be very obvious conclusions. But we need to do it because I think we're a logical species. We don't just want to go by hearsay or old wives tales. We want the science. And if it's logical and it makes sense, we'll, we'll go by it, even if it's flawed science. Um, yeah. But I think we all need the logic. But the logic is pointing back to eat the foods that you're supposed to, you, you were supposed to eat move the way you were supposed to move, sleep the way you were supposed to sleep and mm -hmm. uh, and respond to stress in the way you're supposed to respond to stress. I mean, it all it all sounds so simple and so ridiculous. Uh, mm -hmm. Yet we all, me included, suffer with a number of things as a result of the way and the choices that we make every day. And I know this conversation can sound quite damning on on everyone, me included, for you know the number of ailments or issues that we deal with as a result of the choices that we make but it is societal. You know, we are, there's habits or expectations or rules that are dictating much of the decisions that we make as individuals today. How do we mm -hmm. break free from, yeah, pressures of modern day life and expectations of modern day life and get back to doing the things that are probably going to give us the greatest health and well-being? Yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot of conflicting, confusing information out there. So the average person looking for what they should do for their health is going to get 10 different answers from eight different people, you know? And so uh, it, it can be difficult, but I think that we're in this age of information and so that we should use it to our advantage. And I, and so this was one of the things that I struggled with, you know, uh, when I was getting a medical education, medical education and, um, and after was that I could find a research study that said this was the best way to do something and then I could find another one that said exactly the opposite. And so how do I know which one to trust? And so the reason evolution really spoke to me and, and looking to the past really spoke to me is because um, within evolution, we like it, it selects for a certain characteristic. And so again, if, if things change too fast, we have to go back to that environment that those characteristics were selected for. And so whenever I'm reading a research article or, um, or anything, any article or any piece of information, I'm always looking at it with that context. You know, does this make sense? Would humans have done this uh, for millions of years as we evolved? And so that's one place that people can start to frame their, their thinking and their, their choices on how they can break free from all this conflicting information is, does this make sense as far as the environment that humans evolved in? And is, or is it something that's only been around for a short amount of time, you know, cause if it is, we should question it. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be good for us. It just means that, um, we should proceed with caution, I guess, uh, with those, with these new technologies and these, uh, all these new things that are being marketed toward us as the, you know, the next best thing. Um, 
I mean, there's all these different, you know, one after the other of the next best thing that's going to be the, the, the cure-all or the best for this or, or whatever it may be. Uh, we just have to think about it in that evolutionary context. Uh, I think that's a, a good starting point. Uh, without going into all the different things that that we could apply that to, I I think that's bang on, and, and that has become Stephen increasingly the the lens in which I'm viewing my life. Like you know, I've just said to you a moment ago that you know I think we've got this obsession about life pre- uh, death prevention uh, and living forever, and you know whilst I don't want to live forever, I definitely don't want to suffer whilst I'm here. Um, and through through adaptation, through the work that I've been doing, that framing of am I am I al- am I aligning myself to what my body is capable of doing, given the the short span of so much change? What is the answer to give myself the best opportunity for wellness and well being? Um, mm-hmm. Simple things like Stephen, I've I've recently just bought a. Um, a light alarm clock uh, i probably haven't got the right term but it's a body alarm clock so it it has a sunrise and a sunset and it illuminates the room from like a, a deep orange through to a bright white um in the morning and it, it goes in reverse at night and it can play little songs like waterfalls or, or mm-hmm. birds chirping and i've replaced that oh sorry i've used that to replace my very abrupt alarm clock that happens in in the middle of darkness, typically mm-hmm. here in the UK, especially with my blackout blinds. And I've done that not because of the tech, albeit I'm excited about the tech, it does sound cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it because it just makes sense that mm-hmm. I should be awoken by light, you know? Yeah. I should be awoken naturally and allow my circadian rhythm to smooth itself into the way life should be right which is kind of being governed by the sun and when i've got blackout blinds i've got no way of doing that mm-hmm. yeah I, I think you know edison invented this light bulb and it's just totally created this shift and so now people are waking up way earlier just because they can because we have these artificial lights um uh, they may not be the best lights for us you know um except we're waking up before the sun and then we're staying up too late staring at these blue lights that are making us think it's daytime and now our circadian rhythm is totally off uh, for most people uh, and so uh, that's creating a huge mismatch and it's actually a very big stress to our our autonomic nervous system um, which has been you know imbalanced in the autonomic nervous system it's a whole nother podcast and it's been linked to pretty much every single chronic disease you can think of uh, that's the nervous system the part of the nervous system that allows us to tell whether we are in a safe or threatening environment and if you're doing things every day that are telling your body you're in a threatening environment, you're not going to have good health because you're going to be doing things. Your body physiologically is going to be doing things that it would only do in a time of, you know, get away from a threat, which that's not the, that's not the, uh, the default that we want to be in. I agree, man. I agree. We, we do need to have more parasympathetic activities and we need to mm-hmm. force ourselves into a place of calm. And it's hard, right, when there's just so much to do and so much information yeah. thrown at us and so many demands we put upon ourselves or society has of us. So it's difficult, increasingly so, but we need to take ownership of that because no, no one else is going to own your calm time. Uh, they'll only add more stress yeah. to you if you allow them. So let's yeah. let's pivot to um, the, the the chiropractic service. So um, I spoke I spoke about in the introduction that chiropractors do have a bit of a bad rep. Now I don't know exactly where this kind of reputation 
emanated from and was it was it jealousy or misunderstanding but there is this common theme that chiropractors aren't real doctors that um, their adjustments aren't uh, adding any long-term value their their short-term relief um, and and generally there's a few other things that I've heard but I'm guessing you've heard all of that too and you've had to work through your identity as a chiropractor and functional medicine both of which do get a little bit of heat from western medicine and other mm -hmm. disciplines talk to me about the chiropractic service and and why you believe it is a force for good and valuable to modern day life and people today yeah i think that uh, originally i mean my parents took me to a chiropractor when i was diagnosed that too with with that asthma uh, and and I don't I didn't know at the time I, I couldn't vouch for this. But my parents said that it definitely helped with asthma, which is not something that chiropractic is you know touted as being good for you know. Mm -hmm. um, and you know in my my studies I've I've really uh, honed in on the fact that you know chiropractors see people for like musculoskeletal complaints mainly. That's what they're known for: headaches, neck pain, back pain. But uh, we're having a profound effect on the nervous system as well. And so I like to say that you know chiropractic is treating the nervous system. Uh, through proper function of joints. And so we're having an effect on that autonomic nervous system imbalance. But I think the the more valuable thing related to, to this discussion is the effect that chiropractic can have on all these joints that are mis or dysfunctioning. You know, so we've, we've talked about how this mismatch between our movement uh, in today's society is creating these joint issues. Well, a chiropractic adjustment is... Uh, putting motion into a joint directly that has lost its proper motion. So um, if we're talking about, you know, those joints going through their full range of motion and, you know, squeezing nutrition, the old nutrition out and bringing new nutrition in, like that's what we're helping the body do each time we get a chiropractic adjustment, uh, whether it's your knee, your neck, your wrist, whatever it may be, uh, we're, we're putting motion in that joint so that it can get better nutrition. And then at the same time, we're decreasing inflammatory cytokines, the things that get created whenever we have that dysfunctional movement. Um, and that inflammatory cytokines are now no longer sending that, um, that stress or inflammatory signal to the nervous system that, that heightens our, our stress response. We want it to be calm. So um, I think that given the fact that most people have to, you know, do their jobs, they have to, you know, sit at a desk for long periods of time, or they don't, maybe they don't have the time uh, to, to do proper movement, um, or they just don't know how chiropractic is a wonderful tool, uh, that can be used, uh, to help them achieve better mo uh, movement. And lots of times that's all it really is. It's not any disc or nerve or anything like that. All it is, is improper motion in a joint that's causing someone pain. It's making their muscles react, causing a, a, uh, spasm muscle that's causing them pain. Uh, and so that's, that's the, the place for it. And I think that that way of thinking um, you know, removing the, the, the joint dysfunction so that the body can function properly, you know, flew in the face of, of Western medicine way back in, uh, the early 1900s and chiropractic was coming around. But I think that, I mean, there was actually a, I think that Western medicine was a little threatened by it and, you know, being the business that it is and what's everything's a business really trying to protect their bottom line. They actually put together a committee, uh, in the 1960s, I believe it was, uh, um, the American Medical Association put together a committee to um, like disband chiropractic, and wow. eventually the the Supreme Court. Um, actually, I don't know if it was the Supreme Court, but it was some court ruled it unconstitutional that that committee was unconstitutional. 
uh, that you could not do that. And so they obviously uh, aren't around anymore. But I think that since that time, they like when they were doing that, they put out a lot of these um, these uh, negative things about chiropractic, and people have kind of it's kind of stuck a little bit, unfortunately. Uh, but at its core, chiropractic is just we're trying to remove the things in the body that are creating an interference and, and creating uh, poor health and and put in more of the good things, whether that's better joint motion or nutrition or whatever it may be. So to me, it goes right in line with evolution, with you know us putting ourselves back into that environment that creates um, health for our body. You know, your body doesn't want to be sick. It's only responding the best that it can to the environment that it's in. If we change the environment, um, then we'll get a better health result. And I think that that's the... The, the framework of how chiropractic addresses health, which is why I think it's so effective. My, my experience of chiropractors has been one of with one of need, really, right? You know, you mm-hmm. hurt, <laughs> you hurt, yeah. so you, you go to a chiropractor, fix me. And um, but now my relationship has definitely evolved in 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 how I see that service. For me, this is how I see it. Tell me if if, if you see it any other way, Stephen. Firstly, mm-hmm. I think. Um, it's that much needed interruption and correction to a, a life of chronic misuse of my body, whether it be in the gym or being sedentary or just generally how I sit or how I stand. I know I don't do myself good. I know I don't move as much. I know I, I'm not doing much natural movement during the course of the day. And I feel it's a, it's a necessary investment in me because without that, with my modern lifestyle, my lack of movement, I think I just would be going downhill pretty quickly in terms of function body function and movement so firstly i think it's that that necessary investment and also uh, a response to getting hurt or twinging or causing some issue and you're getting that little correction but i do yeah. see it as a as a bit of a just a short-term relief that by itself is probably not that valuable unless it's followed up with therapeutic work there afterwards i the second reason I go back to the chiropractor is that I get a wonderful education from the person I work with. You know, the person understands the the body, the anatomy, and quite frankly, uh, the health, uh, the, as you say, the autonomic system, you know, what I need. She can even notice where, where, if I'm ill, if my sinuses are up and right, just fix my back. What are we talking about a fat? Do you think I've got a cold? I mean, she can spot that because she can see it in my body. So mm-hmm. I get this opportunity, this 20, 30 minutes to get educated on how I should move better, how to rehab issues, how to follow through with a correction so I can have a long-term change and not just that instant change that just basically goes back after a couple of days of doing the same thing. And I feel it's an investment in me understanding me. And that's why I go to a chiropractor. And I believe it. the service naturally ends up bleeding into, and we spoke about this offline, bleeding into a multidiscipline service because... I don't know. I, I find that chiropractors have a have a, a willingness to look at the system, the body as a system versus an individual specialism of the heart or the, the liver or you know right. our lungs. And I, I find that wonderful. I find it a wonderful discussion. But at its core, I'm going there for my body to be corrected and hopefully a bit of education so I can stop uh, you know the problems I keep causing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said earlier, I mean, from the time we're five years old, we're put into a desk and we're made to sit still and we develop these muscle movement patterns and these improper joint motions and then we become fully developed and we're we're you know 
somewhat set in stone at that point. And we can, and it's from there, it's like an uphill battle to undo those uh, imbalances and we can have an effect on them. Um, but that's, that's to me where chiropractic is helping people get over those. And then, like you said, it's, it's really important though, to not just, uh, go and get that adjustment, but to actually retrain the body so that it can maintain that adjustment, maintain that joint motion better, um, afterwards. Uh, because if we look at it like, oh, I can just go to the chiropractor and get this fixed, like that's not really the way it works. That's the way people, mm. some people would like it to work. And that's um, maybe where uh, the bad rep comes from because you right, might feel yeah. the instant relief, but then in a few days' time, the, the problem reoccurs because you're doing the same things, right? You're sitting the same way, you're moving the same way or not moving. Right. And as a result, the yeah. things come back. Right. And and people all the time, I get, you know, you, you adjust the same spots over and you do the same thing. Um, and well, that person feels I'm doing the same thing because they're going home and doing the same things they were doing to, to get them into the, that restricted joint motion. So it's yeah. the same areas over and over again that I need to adjust. And if they would, you know, in our practice, we like to do uh, functional uh, rehabilitation so that um, we get longer lasting results. We kind of, we build new habits. You know, I can, I can shake those habits up with an adjustment, but then retraining them so that it's more um, long lasting is what's uh, more important, I think. Cool. I think I think so far this conversation has been awesome, and hopefully the the audience thinks so too, Stephen. Maybe yeah. um, we could close on uh, maybe some of the big the big big rocks as it comes to retraining and looking after our our body, our joints, um, our movement. What whilst I know everyone is unique and everyone has unique circumstances, which would need different adjustment, different rehab, different retraining, of course. Mm-hmm. Is there some big rocks like, you know what, nine times out of 10, it's because they don't do these things and they should be doing more of these things. Can you kind of give us a couple of those big rocks? Yeah, I think I've got three here. So one is, is first look at, look at your life, look at the things that may be creating the imbalances and see if you can change them. If you can't, you know, then you can't. But if you can find those things and change those, uh, then you're going to have a much easier time, um, creating proper movement when you are doing your workouts and things like that. Um, the second I think is a lot of people are focused on, you know, a workout that's very active and gets them sweating and, you know, they feel like they worked out and they use their muscles, they train their muscles, made them stronger. But I think a lot of what uh, is missing sometimes is a more lengthening type of exercise. One that's focused on lengthening your muscles and giving your joints proper motion because I mean, I see it all the time. These huge bodybuilders have no range of motion because they've just created tighter and tighter and stronger, much stronger muscles, yes, um, but their joints are suffering because of it. Um, they're, they're restricting their motion. So um, strength is super important, um, and, and um, strength training is probably one of the best forms of exercise we could do, but uh, we want to get a lengthening form of exercise in there as well. And then lastly... And just just before you get on to the third point, what? give yeah. me an example of that. Like, I understand, you know doing loads of bicep curls without, you know, ever, you know, stretching and strengthening, sorry, lengthening the bicep and the attachments into the shoulder could cause a bit of a problem. But give us an example of a lengthening approach to training your muscles where you're also looking to get hypertrophy and develop some strength at the same time. Well, I don't know if we could do it at the same time, but I mean, I I like, um, doing difficult yoga poses. Like I'm, I'm maintaining my, um, this difficult pose, you know, I'm holding myself up in whatever pose this may be, but I'm also stretching other, some other aspect of my body while I'm in that pose, you know, um, it could be, it could be contorting myself, you know, to where, um, I'm up on my hands, 
but my, my legs are off to the side, you know, so I'm, I'm stretching out my pelvis, um, but I'm using the strength of my upper body, uh, things like that. Um, and then, I mean, along those same lines, if you're doing a bicep curl and you're, you know, trying to do as much weight as you can, you're not going through the full range of motion of that curl. You're just training your, your muscle to restrict the motion of your joint. Um, so if you're, you know, doing repetitions of something, if you find that you can't do a full, uh, like a full range of motion repetition of that, the weight's too high, go down so that you can do that full range of motion, you know, or if you're relying on your momentum, you know, to, to get the next rep in, uh, I, I wouldn't advise that. I'd, I'd rather you go through the full range of motion and be able to lift that, do that lift, um, completely functional with full range of motion through the joint. I think that's a way better way to train your muscles. I think that's great advice. And I also think you get better hypertrophy benefits in doing mm -hmm. that as well. So I think it's a win-win. Yeah. Cool. Sorry for yeah. interrupting your flow. You had a third, didn't you? Yeah. The third is look at the functionality of your, of your movements that you're doing in your workout. So very rarely in nature would, so like, let's say I'm, I'm out there like, uh, hunting or something and, uh, some animal comes out and tries to chase me. I would, my brain would never activate one muscle at a time. You know, it would never say, okay, we're gonna, you know, do the hip flexors to pull your leg up and then contract the glute to push your leg down like one at a time. They're all happening pretty much like that simultaneously. And so I think that the more, um, the more, um, evolutionary uh, way of, of doing exercises to do more functional motions. So do like, if you're lifting weights, do more complex lifts, lifts that, um, use many joints at the same time, you know, rather than if you're doing just that bicep curl, you're training that one group of muscles, um, to activate and you're training your brain to activate it individually. When in reality, we're more designed to function, um, uh, many muscles at the same time. So if you're going to train your, um, biceps, I love like pull-ups way better. Um, because you're doing your shoulders, you're, you're even using your core and you can even like, you know, pull up and then kind of push yourself up on the bar, uh, to use the, the opposite triceps and everything, just more functionality there. Um, so look at how complex your lifts are. Um, and I know there's a, there's a case for like bodybuilders who want to, you know, hypertrophy a, a single muscle as much as they can. And they do these lifts to do that. I think that's creating imbalance. Mm. Um, but if we're wanting function and health, um, create com complex lifts uh, or exercises that are involving as 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 many um, movements of the joint as possible. Yeah, no, no one said bodybuilding was a healthy sport. <laughs> yeah, because sure. because it because it, it really isn't. If you want to look jacked and you know you want to compete, you have to accept that you're you're doing your wellness and uh, your health some some detrimental impact. It's, it's yeah. funny you, t you talk about compound movements. So, you know, I think it's, it's definitely, you know, the theme within strength training at the moment that people should be doing, you know, deadlift squats, uh, mm -hmm. overhead presses, pull-ups, barbell rows. I do those you know, massive crossover, great benefits. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely feel stronger, more capable, more functional, uh, through the full use of my body as a result of doing those. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I definitely lack, and I think this probably, relates to a lot of people that are focused on their movement movement almost exclusively within the gym is that i don't really do anything else other than the gym <laughs> like you yeah. know I, I i you know i walk the dog i might play some frisbee with the girls you know uh, mm -hmm. but beyond that it's like it's doing these very prescribed um controlled ranges of motion isolated or compound in the gym and a bit of walking I think I'm missing 
what nature intended a little bit you know as i yeah. say climbing stuff and doing right. you know, just using my body in different angles and different planes and really getting right. getting the most out of it and i think i probably would feel better if i did do you have any practice around really using your body the, the way evolution intended well i mean i like to get out in the woods i know hiking and camping are, are two of my favorite things uh so i'm moving around on uneven terrain uh may climb a tree or two if, that, if that's okay. called for <laughs> yeah uh, but i also like i like to play soccer um i like to do yoga and I, I used to be really into weightlifting. That was my main thing. And I still do lift weights. I do a lot of um, some weightlifting and then a lot of uh, uh, like body weight exercises and things like that. Um, but I try and I try and design them in a way that I think one of the most beneficial things is like an exercise that will cause one of your limbs to cross the midway point of your body and go to the other side. That's really training your, your proprioception, your coordination, um, because it's crossing and it's almost like confusing your brain. It has to train itself to do that. Um, but I, I try and, um, you know, I like to lift weights because of the benefits it has. I like to, um, uh, gain strength, but I try and do it in a way that's, that's functional. Uh, so like I, I try and really do the, the yoga poses that require a lot of strength. Um, but also it's, it's, it's more functional, I think. Um, but I, I like to do a lot of different things, but I think that it's really important. The first one is to get yourself in environments that aren't so square, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so that your body is responding to different um, uh, uh, inputs, you know. And last question for me, then, as as we wrap this conversation up, you, you, it sounds like you you know what should be done. Like I'm, I know what should be done. I know what I should eat, how I mm -hmm. should move, where I should go, be out more in nature, sit less, you know, go to bed earlier, wake up consistently. You know, there's the the, the principles are understood by me doesn't mean mm -hmm. I always follow them. So mm -hmm. as you look at your life as it currently stands now, Stephen, where are the biggest areas for improvement for you? Uh, for me, I think the number one is uh, stress right now. Uh, I think um, not just, I mean, it's hard to eliminate stresses. I mean, you, society demands a lot of us these days. And if we want to be successful in society today, we have to take on those stresses. But I think that it's it's more how I let them affect me and the things that I do to mitigate that stress. Uh, I'm, I've always been very um, strict on diet uh, and and movement. Uh, I, I make room for those things; those are important. But it's like the stress relieving and the and the changing the perception of stress; those kinds of things I need to work on. Uh, and I see that with you know my heart rate variability that I measure, like I. Um, uh, when it gets down to a certain point, I'm like, man, I, I really got to do something about this. But it's just, it's hard to, because it's hard to see the repercussions of stress immediately. You know, um, like with diet, if I eat something that I don't agree with, and I see my blood sugar go up, I, my GI system's hurting, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, or if I've stopped working out, I can, I can see the, the loss that I have there, uh, just from the stamina and the fitness point of view. Uh, but with stress, like that's something that most people don't see the effects of until, you know, it, it, it comes up with being a disease. Uh, and even then, they may not attribute it to the stress, you know. So uh, that's one thing that I really have to wrap my head around, and 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 it's harder for me to to stay on top of. Mm. I agree. I think I, I get stressed too, and I think part of that is understanding purpose, uh, aligning with your passion, mm. and setting appropriate expectations, and maybe asking why a little bit more. Right? You know, we yeah, do, we do we do a lot. You know, we expect a lot of ourselves. 
we're in a culture right now that the individual is all powerful and you know anyone could be an entrepreneur and anyone could do anything they want you just got to get after it you have to put enough mm -hmm. hours you have to commit enough but sometimes that's the wrong prescription sometimes yeah. actually it's the, the intuition to understand what your body needs and you kind of see quite a few people on social media right now going through that evolution themselves where they mm -hmm. were jacked and now they're not <laughs> they were right. you know they're obsessed with their physique and all things uh, exercise and now there's they're into yoga and meditation and there seems to be a heightened sense of intuition based on what their psyche needs right because yeah i i, I think we all still struggle with why um, yeah. You know, what what is the point? <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah. quite often we can keep ourselves busy and just stress ourselves out and go. Well, you know, what do we need? What would make ourselves happy? I think. Yeah. I think there's a we, lot to do be we, done there. <laughs> yeah. Or what do we not need? We we don't necessarily need this. This is not necessary for survival. I can drop this. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Um, give everyone a little bit about where to find your book, your website and generally up where you hang out online. Yeah, so my website is resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, there's a link to the book uh, there under the resource shop, um, but you can also find it on Amazon. Uh, and that's just as of recently, maybe like three days ago now, it's an audiobook too, so uh, that's good. Um, and the I book is called? The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health. Fantastic. Yeah, and I also have another smaller ebook uh, about the heart that's what I focus in on my health coaching, which is also uh, on the website, resourceyourhealth.com. And then I'm probably most active on um, Instagram and Facebook. It's where I post um, a lot of my content and I try and make it relevant to the heart because that's what I focus on. But I like talking about evolution and other stuff as well. So if you're interested in those types of things, I'm, I'm always posting stuff on there. Cool. And I'll make sure the links are in the show notes so people can find you easily. Cool. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I've really enjoyed this discussion. This this is a passion of mine, you know, getting to understand the why behind humans and in, as, as an individual trying to work out the best way to be myself and be comfortable with who I am and thrive knowing, you know, both my imbalances and my needs. So this conversation of evolution was fantastic. Thank you so much for offering anecdote, science, you know, personal experience and, and talking so eloquently about this subject, Stephen. I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a blast. Cool, man. Take care. Hopefully we keep in touch. All right, see ya. See you later. Oh, I love that conversation. And Stephen's such a good guy who has had a penny-dropping moment so young in his life, the acknowledgement and realization that we can't outdo evolution. We can't outdo our history of 2 million years and expect in the last 50 40, 20, 10 years to transform our environment, our nutrition, our exercise and expect good results. It's never going to work. And I love the science that's blossoming over the last 10 years that are really proving out important concepts on how we should lead an optimal life for good physical, mental and psychological health. And all the conclusions, the good studies are always pointing down to one thing, and that is lead your life the way we had evolved to lead our life over the last 2 million years. Frame every decision you make based on the evolutionary path that we've taken that allowed us to dominate this world as the dominant species and thrive with great consciousness, great intellect, 
great physical and mental capability. What did evolutionary design us to have, to do, to be capable of? I think it's a great question and a way in which you can navigate the decisions you need to make in life, whether it be around nutrition, around exercise, around mindset, around purpose. I mean, great, great context. So guys, listen, as always, you know, Adaptation is all about providing you with the tools and expert knowledge to help you improve and optimize your strength, health and mindset inside and out. Until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.